I cannot conceive that an English king would ever agree to repudiate the promises that were made to people of any complexion. As far as I'm concerned, these people are free and they are free to go anywhere in the world they choose. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Susan O'Donovan of the History Department at Harvard University. And we're going to be speaking tonight with historian Cassandra Pibus about her new book, Epic Journeys of Freedom, Runaway Slaves of the American Revolution and Their Global Quest for Liberty. Award-winning historian Cassandra Pibus has unearthed the stories of dozens of individual revolutionary-era slaves, including George Washington's slave Harry, whose extraordinary bids for freedom involved escaping from their masters, taking up arms on the side of the British, and forging new lives across four continents. She recounts their tenacious struggle to make freedom a reality in their own lives in her new book, Epic Journeys of Freedom. Where did these courageous and hopeful idealists go? What kind of lives did they succeed in making for themselves? What can we learn, especially, about the human dimension of that ideal of freedom from their struggles to find dignity and self-determination? Cassandra Pibus is the Australian Research Council Chair of History at the University of Sydney. She's an award-winning author and is a frequent visiting fellow at American universities. And so I'd like to um, welcome uh, to Cambridge Forum this evening, Cassandra Pibus. Thank you very much. I promise you that it was never my intention to plunge into becoming a revisionist historian of the American Revolution, but it does seem that to at least to a, 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 I'm always going to be um, tarred with that particular brush, I fear, because it is true that I have um, that, my, that my book is in many ways challenging the received story about the African-American runaways who, who, who ran to the British. First of all, it was clear to me that there were not huge numbers of them. There were not 100,000. There were not 50,000. There was probably 20,000, mostly in South Carolina and Virginia over a period of seven, between 1775 and 1782. Of those people a huge number. In, in Virginia, maybe as much as 40%. In South Carolina, 25 to 30% died of smallpox and epidemic disease. It is an astonishing thing to think about. And, and even with Elizabeth Fenn's brilliant book on smallpox during the American Revolution, I don't think anybody has actually kind of put their imagination to work at the scale of that particular disaster. And, it's, and it is very focused. It doesn't spread out over the war. It's very focused on a couple of key incidents. One of them is in Virginia in 1776. Some of you may know that the royal governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, offered um, slaves who ran to the British freedom if they took up arms for the king. And in response to that, there were, despite the difficulties of actually reaching Lord Dunmore, because he was on a fleet of ships in the James River, there was a you know, considerable um, response of several thousand um, runaways who managed to get onto these ships. But at the same time, as you know, this revolutionary upheaval hits 
both Massachusetts and Virginia, so does smallpox. And these crowded ships were just the perfect incubators. And, of course, native-born people in America had no resistance to smallpox. The British had both resistance and the military were inoculated against it. So you have this extraordinary kind of situation in which there are these pestilential ships just full of dying people with smallpox, which is, after all, one of the most hideous diseases. And the British surgeons are trying to inoculate people uh, at the same time as every day brings fresh fresh numbers of runaway slaves. And so even when they find a little island that they can isolate people on to inoculate them, um, everybody's so weakened that there is then um, a, a wave of uh, uh, typhoid fever sweeps through. And so the death toll is at least 70%, maybe more. I mean, the number of dead bodies that are simply being thrown overboard, buried in shallow graves is horrifying and shocking. And so inevitably, with that kind of crisis on their hands, there's no way that the British can stay in the Chesapeake. And so they leave to go to the, what has become the British stronghold now in New York. And just as they are leaving the Chesapeake, the ship that is, in the, you know, the kind of I'm sure there's an able term for it that's escaping me, but the, but the, the first ship of the fleet, HMS Roebuck, goes up the Potomac River to collect some fresh water. And they, I got this out of the log of... I read the logs of all the ships to see if they talked about it, really. And some of them do. The captain of the Roebuck talks about it a lot. Um, his log is full of this stuff. But anyway, also in his log is this tiny little thing about when he goes up the Potomac River, he encounters a small craft that's come down the river from Fairfax County. And on board this craft, there are, quote, three servants of General Washington's. And um, at first I wasn't sure what this meant. But... The British don't always refer to, in fact, often do not refer to enslaved people as slaves. They can call them servants, they can call them slaves, they can call them any number of things, refugees often in relation to the, the people that they're picking up during this time. But later, when I was reading the, the book of the names of people being evacuated from um, New York, I encountered Harry Washington, who had run away from General Washington in 1776. So obviously one of the three servants of General Washington who is on this ship is his, is his ostler, Harry, um, who goes on to become a kind of major figure in my story. I was really very interested to see that not only did Harry Washington run away from George Washington, but another... 17 or so, 16, uh, people ran away in 1781, which is the next hideous kind of exercise as far as the outbreak of smallpox is concerned because that, again, hits at the time that Lord Cornwallis is marching through Virginia on his way to Yorktown with this enormous train. I mean, you don't have to accept the the numbers uh, that people like Sylvia Fry talk about to, to have a sense of the enormity of it. You know, they, he, he has three or 4,000 black runaways in the train of his army, um, and they're kind of on this forced march. And the only way he can do it, get through Virginia that fast, is to, um, 
is to use the, his black recruits as foragers. And one of the people who is on the march with him, one of the German soldiers, refers to every place they pass through looking like it's been visited by a plague of locusts. And in his wake behind him is uh, General Lafayette uh, with the Continental Army who is just bemoaning the fact that he doesn't have any Negroes to forage for him or to bring him horses. And that's why um, Cornwallis manages to stay so far ahead of him. But, of course, when they get to... Yorktown and get pinned down in Yorktown, I can't get out, it's inevitable that once again smallpox explodes within, inside that fort. And again, this is one of the terrible stories of the revolution that you never hear about. Not only are they being bombarded day and night so that hardly a building is left standing in Yorktown, but people are just dropping dead everywhere. It's 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 appalling situation. The people who survive out of this... The British look after them. They look after them, they smuggle them out of Yorktown. A huge number of African-Americans appear to have been smuggled out of Yorktown on the ships that took the paroled officers after Yorktown to New York. In New York, they stand up to George Washington, who insists that all Negroes with the... um, with the British have to be left behind, have to be returned to their masters. Um, The new British commander-in-chief says... He won't do it. Um, Basically, to Washington's astonishment, he says that he cannot conceive that the British king would ever have agreed to such a dishonourable thing to go back on their promises to people of any complexion. And as far as he's concerned, when he arrived in New York, all of those um, African-Americans behind the British lines, there's probably about 5,000 of them, were free. And as far as he was concerned, they are free to go anywhere in the world they wish. And so they have actually evacuated with the English. The reason we know about them is because he agreed to Washington that he would write down their names and the names of the people who claimed to own them. So there I see Harry Washington owned General Washington, claims he ran away from. And there I see several other of Washington's slaves and several of... Um, Benjamin Harrison's slaves and several of Patrick Henry's slaves and I can list the names of the signers of the Declaration of Independence in the South and all of them have runaway slaves on this list of people who took to their heels with the rhetoric of their masters ringing around their ears and said, well, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Now... This group of people, and my research suggests it's probably about nine to 10,000 people were evacuated with the British during the period of 1782 to 1783. They constitute a sort of diaspora within the diaspora. They, they fan out through the um, British Empire, really. Uh, they go to places in the Caribbean. They go to St. Lucia. They go to Jamaica. They go to Bahamas. They go to that strange, unregulated area known as the Mosquito Shore. Um, They go to, in large numbers, they go to Nova Scotia, as you probably know. This is the beginning of the black community in Canada. And they go to England. In fact, the majority of them, one way or the other, fetch up in London. So what I decided to do was that I'd concentrate on the people who go to England, to London, and these two bizarre colonial experiments that start in 1787, one a di- basically that take some of these black loyalists to 
separate ends, of, howling wilderness at separate ends of the globe. One is the providence of freedom in Sierra Leone on the west coast of Africa, and the other one is Botany Bay on uh, the east coast of what is now called Australia. I really liked the idea of following these people because of the symmetry of it. Basically, they leave almost at the same time. The two ship, the fleets of ships that take them are moored alongside one another at Spithead. They're, they're, they're being provisioned by the same company at the same time. You know, it, even to the extent that the British newspapers mix them up and they say these black settlers who are being taken to Sierra Leone are actually being sent to Australia as prisoners and vice versa. And the, the, uh, There's a lot of confusion about it. And so it seemed to me the idea of these two fleets that kind of separate um, in the Solent and go, you know, one all the way to Australia ten months later and the other much shorter but much more disastrous trip to West Africa. So my book sort of bifurcates into the stories of the handful of people who come to Australia and a much larger group that goes to Sierra Leone. The first uh, group of settlers is almost completely decimated by yellow fever. The second group of settlers comes from Nova Scotia. There's a second, much larger group of people, 1,200 people, first settled in Nova Scotia, then resettle in Sierra Leone. And these include the people whom I had picked up in Virginia, in particular Harry Washington. And whilst they're in Sierra Leone, they... should track back a little bit and tell you that Sierra Leone was set up by British abolitionists as a quasi-colony, which would be a trading settlement to be a kind of challenge to slavery on the west coast of Africa, settled by free Africans, and it would also be a beachhead for evangelical Christianity into Africa. It was a complete disaster the first time, very poorly thought out. The idea that somehow these... um, self-emancipated people from America, most of whom were not born in Africa, could somehow adjust to the appalling conditions that they encountered when they arrived in the middle of monsoon rains on the west coast of Africa. And, And as I say, you know, decimated by yellow fever. The second group also seriously um, ill um, on their first contact with West Africa, but they kind of dig in there And for the next, let's see, 12 years, there is this constant tussle and it gets more and more like a struggle with the people who run it, the Sierra Leone Company. The Sierra Leone Company is made up of the most famous names in British abolitionism, William Wilberforce, Henry Thornton, Thomas Clarkson. They do not appreciate that these self-emancipated people who've gone to Sierra Leone want to be free in more than name only. They have taken on board the kind of rhetoric that they've heard all the way through the American Revolution. They understand about liberty and they understand about rights. They have a notion of rights that are so radical by the ver- it compared for these white Englishmen. I mean, no... Um, the British labouring classes would never dream of asking for these kinds of rights, you know. They want representation in the government. They want representation in the courts. They want, they want a self-determining, self-governing community. And, they want, and, and basically the Sierra Leone company point-blank refuses to give it to them. 
And so this tussle gets stronger and stronger and more and more agitated until in 1800 there is something that looks like, and certainly the Sierra Leone Company calls, a rebellion against the Sierra Leone Company. And what's so really... In, and Harry Washington is one of the leaders of it. And what is so interesting about it, and I'll finish with this, is that it, it hangs on two particular issues. One is that they are being charged a quit rent, a huge quit rent for the land that they've been given, taxation, unfair taxation. And the other is that they have no representation in the government. It is, in fact, a fundamental rebellion on the basis of, you know, taxation and representation. It is put down brutally and efficiently by the Sierra Leone Company, who just happened to have invited 500 maroon warriors from Jamaica to come to Sierra Leone, and they arrive at exactly that time and are invited to go and, quote, stretch their legs a little, round up these so-called rebels. They're exported, they're sent. Interestingly enough, they are sent away to slave forts, British slave forts up and down the west coast of Africa. You know, this is a sure sentence of death, and two of them are hung. It's an incredibly repressive, draconian response from who? William Wilberforce, Henry Thornton. And it seems to me that the reason that we don't know this story and that the struggles of people like Henry, Harry, Harry Washington, the name alone, should have been enough to set the alarm bells off, the reason that we don't know about it is because we want to look upon these white abolitionists as the saints of Clapham. We want to see them as the men who struggle. I mean, look at all the books that are coming out about them right now, these laudatory books about them. I mean, and in many ways, they're hugely admirable men. But when it came to self-emancipated slaves who stood on their own legs, weren't kneeling and begging, am I not a man and a brother, but standing up and demanding the rights equivalent to well-educated white Englishmen, then they didn't want to bar off them. And I'll finish with a quote from William Wilberforce about the people whom he sent off to die in slave forts on the west coast of Africa. These self-emancipated slaves are the worst kind of settlers, he said, as thorough Jacobins as if they'd been trained and educated in Paris. But, of course, they were trained and educated in the American Revolution, and let us not forget it. Thank you. You're joining us at Cambridge Forum, uh, listening to Cassandra Pibus discussing epic journeys of freedom. I think it's time now to open up um, to take questions from the audience. As a historian, could you speculate to what would, would happen if the American political leaders dealt with slavery after the Revolutionary War? You know, this is the book that people should be writing about. This is the book that people should be writing these are the books that should be winning the Pulitzer Prize. These are the big, fat books that we need to see. What would have happened if the American Revolution had have got rid of slavery? The fact that people won't even risk their arm and try it, really, as an outsider, breaks my heart. I think that, you know, it's something that would take an enormous amount of of, of work to think through, and I can't answer your question. But I can throw out the question to say is why are people not writing these books? Why is there not a best-selling book in the co-op or in Harvard Books about 
positing how the American Revolution could have gone another way. It could so easily have gone another way. And, and not only is there the issue about why didn't you get rid of slavery, but why was slavery so thoroughly entrenched and made so much worse following the establishment of the United States? These are the kinds of issues that I still think historians need to grapple with. I don't know myself whether it was possible, but I would like to see somebody giving it a little bit more of a, more of a go. And perhaps the Pulitzer Prize might once be given to somebody who actually calls slavery for what it is. Most of the country stopped slavery before the United States. You did right. The newspaper reporters from around the world, how did they write about the slavery in the United States during the 18th century after... Did you come across some... Oh, well, yes, even at the time of the American Revolution, the British newspapers run these fantastic cartoons about, um, you know, the slave drivers yelping about liberty as they're kind of cracking the whip over all of these, you know, enchained people out in their fields. Um, The sort of rampant hypocrisy of it was not lost on very many people. And it's quite interesting that one of the things that does happen, this is where British abolitionism begins in the um, American Revolution because most of the people who become abolitionists are supporters of the American um, Revolution, supporters of the the breakaway movement in the colony. But the one thing that appalls them is the the fact that that the American states still cleave to this institution. Granville Sharp, who is the man who first dreams up the idea of the colony in Sierra Leone, is the person who most articulates the idea that Britain has lost its moral capital by because of its complicity in the slave trade. And you begin to see some major kind of intellectual figures. And the newspapers is full of this stuff, talking about how we cannot be, we can't have an empire, and we cannot be a moral state as long as we continue to be involved in the slave trade. And this is where the whole abolitionist movement starts to take off from. So as with so many other things, you know, abolitionism has its roots in the American... British abolitionism has its roots in the American Revolution, not American abolitionism, which is a strange contradiction, you'd have to admit. And one of the things that's so interesting about these British generals who go to so much trouble to make sure that the promises that they made to um, people to, if you run away from your masters and come to us, we'll make you free, that that they could actually honour that to the letter of the law. It seems to me that they do this not because they're anti-slavery. Some of them own slaves. It's not because they are, you know, deeply moral people. It's because they can see that this is the... In the face of ignominious defeat, this is the one thing that gives them some moral capital. The fact that... And you can see it so clearly in the meeting between Guy Carlton, who did not own slaves, and George Washington in the... Carlton just seizes the high moral ground. And Washington is really taken aback. You know, this statement about, I cannot conceive that an English king would ever agree to repudiate the promises that were made to people of any complexion. And the very suggestion, because, of course, he had signed this treaty that said exactly that, they would not take away American-owned Negroes, quote... But he goes on to say the very suggestion that the king would agree to such an ignominious thing 
can only be taken to be an unfriendly act, which is basically saying to Washington, you keep, you say this anymore and we'll declare war on you again. We don't hold slaves. We keep our promises to people. As far as I'm concerned, these people are free and they are free to go anywhere in the world they choose. His language. They choose. And the certificates of freedom that he has his generals issue all say that and is free to go anywhere in the world name so chooses. Now, it's very admirable, but at the same time you can clearly see that these are very proud men, these British officers, and they're, they're humiliated beyond belief by the fact that the French have beat them and now they've got to let go of the American colonies. And so this is one thing that they hold on to. So it's an interesting mixture of kind of pragmatism. It's pragmatism feeding what then becomes a kind of moral position. So a bit later, you have um, Prime Minister Pitt telling the American ambassador to Britain, John Adams, who, of course, is very anti-slavery, but he's been instructed by Congress that he has to complain about the fact that the British ran off with all their slaves, and Pitt agrees that that's what they did in contravention of the treaty, but he tells him they were responding to a higher moral calling, a higher moral law, a moral position that is higher than a treaty that the British government had signed. And so, of course, this is exactly the sort of stuff that you tell John Adams who kind of tucks his tail between his legs and goes away because he completely agrees um, and so what else can he do? Whereas Thomas Jefferson just foams at the mouth at this stuff and keeps saying, you know, you've stolen all my slaves. I can't pay my bills. I'm in debt. If you hadn't stolen all my slaves, I'd be able to pay, my, pay you my debts. And then he goes a bit further and he says, the whole of Virginia doesn't need to pay its massive debts because the British stole our slaves. It's the difference between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. I'll confess, I didn't quite get to the end of the book, but almost. Um, and it's a heroic story, but, but at the same time, it's also a very tragic story. Um, I mean, you terrible things befall these people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Sierra Leone um, is, is, ends in, in a virtual disaster. Um, even, even though people do survive in Australia, you know, the first years are just Brutal. horrific. And, you know, when people lose loved ones and husbands lose wives and children die and marriages are shattered. And so, you know, I, I, I look at this book and I'm reading the title and it's Epic Journeys of Freedom, you know, so it's got this glorious feel to it. But I'm wondering, what lessons do we, do we draw from these lives um, about slavery, about freedom, and really about the distance between these two concepts, that it's often very easy for historians to try to separate them. I think that um, it's been far too easy for historians to talk about slavery um, and that the end point of slavery is, is this slippery concept called freedom. And one of the things that my book is really about is about negotiating freedom, how difficult freedom is and how these people had to make freedom a tangible reality. They had to define it. I mean, you know, they had to find a way to make that real. And I think that's something a lot of historians haven't done. They haven't followed emancipation into freedom and, and the process and see how difficult the process is and how much needs to be negotiated over and over and over again, certainly in the 18th century, when really the concept of freedom is um, 
for people who don't have money, education, patronage, etc., is really the freedom to choose between one master and another. And um, what's so striking about the people who go to Sierra Leone is that they, they, they ratchet it up another notch. You know, freedom means more than that as far as they're concerned. And they fight really hard to make sure that they get it. And they have rights that far exceed the rights of any European Labourers. It's quite astonishing, actually. So, yes, there, finish. <laughs> so they, so they've, they've, they've redefined freedom more on this on, on American terms. Yes, absolutely on American terms. And so, yeah, so, they've, so they've extended this understanding and exported it. Exactly. They take back the reverse passage across the middle passage. One of the remarkable paradoxes it is they take back the animating principles of the revolution that so completely excluded them. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Cassandra Pybus. You have been listening to a program of Cambridge Forum. For more information about this radio program entitled Epic Journeys of Freedom featuring Cassandra Pybus or about our ongoing radio series, visit us on the web at www.cambridgeforum.org. In Harvard Square, I'm Susan O'Donovan. Thank you very much for joining us.